This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Pokedew Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. It'll make sense later, bro. Don't worry about it. How are you doing? <laughs> Fine. How are you? In this week's episode, we're going to hear the bear and bull case for investing in Facebook. Bro talks to financial planner Matt Trogdon about a more holistic way to ponder the true cost of your expenses, and we'll answer your question about paying capital gains taxes. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Imagine you're in college and you decide to build a website to rank the hotness of the women on campus. Icky decision, but okay. Within a short amount of time, your playful display of misogyny grew to be one of the most influential websites on the planet with almost 3 billion monthly active users, generating almost $90 billion in 2020. One of the big reasons for your massive success is the powerful algorithm under the hood that curates the content we see and ultimately preys on our most base instincts, accelerating feelings of jealousy, anger, and depression. Oh, you watched that whole video because it made you outraged? Here, have more of that. Of course, I'm talking about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, who's had a rough autumn. While the rest of us were putting on cozy sweaters and eyeing all the new pumpkin spice offerings, the Wall Street Journal published a massive expose saying time and time again, the documents show Facebook's researchers have identified the platform's ill effects time and time again. Despite congressional hearings, its own pledges and numerous media expose, the company didn't fix them. This included that Facebook buried studies that showed their platforms encouraged depression, eating disorders, and suicidal thoughts in girls and young women. And the whistleblower who supplied many of the documents to the Wall Street Journal went on to testify on Capitol Hill. And now some lawmakers are saying the company is too powerful and needs to be broken up, or at least have a skosh more oversight and regulation. A Facebook is a recommendation of more than 10 services at The Motley Fool. And coincidentally enough, it's up tenfold since we first recommended it. But is this Facebook firestorm reason enough to sell your shares? Is all of this scrutiny and threats of breaking up the company going to result in lower returns? Or is Facebook now a sin stock and are ethical concerns enough reason to sell so you can sleep at night? I thought, who better to help lay out the case than Jason Moser, an analyst here at The Motley Fool and frequent guest on the podcast. Jason Moser, give me the bull case for investing in Facebook. Yeah, the bull case for Facebook uh, is relatively simple. I mean, with over 1.9 billion daily active users and 2.9 billion monthly active users, Facebook has simply put captured a massive audience. Core properties, including Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger, make it the largest social network in the world. Then advertisers continue to flock to the platform because that's where so many of the eyeballs are. Uh, so, as one of the big two in the advertising market, Google, of course, being the other, uh, Facebook is essentially required spending for advertisers because people just keep using the platform. And it's really hard to see that changing in the near term. Uh, you add to that the optionality in initiatives like commerce and augmented virtual reality and even the Metaverse, uh, it does appear for better and for worse that Facebook is going to remain a very relevant part of our lives for the foreseeable future. Uh, and for a company with virtually limitless financial resources, that is something to consider. Thank you, Jason. Now for the bear case, I'm going to turn to Mason Joser. He's a lesser known analyst here at The Motley Fool, but I'm sure you'll find him just as compelling as Jason Moser. Mason, what's the bear case for Facebook? 
Yeah, the bear case for Facebook seems to be growing. Um, it, it has developed a nasty track record when it comes to privacy and the bigger picture social impact that its platforms have on people, uh, particularly young people. And what's worse, founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg just seems totally clueless and utterly tone deaf as to how to respond to such con uh, concerns. Um, I don't know that there is a more distrusted CEO on the planet today, uh, and it feels like he's really earned that, unfortunately. Uh, regulators appear to have had enough, and some sort of action seems inevitable. But how that ultimately plays out is still anyone's guess. Um, obviously, it's it's historically been an acquisitive company, but I'd imagine that going forward, any potential deals will, uh, will be examined with extreme skepticism by regulators. Um, and I'm also quite certain the costs are going to go up, uh, as they must continue to work to shore up these safety problems. Uh, so, so there is a level of uncertainty there, along with a just a growing ick factor in, in actually owning these shares. Uh, that could be uh, a headwind to the stock here in the coming years. Okay, yeah, you probably guessed it. That was the same person. A person perhaps conflicted. So what is Jason Moser's final say? Buy, sell, or hold Facebook? Yeah, it's starting to feel like maybe the low-hanging fruit may have been picked when it comes to Facebook, but I'm not... I'm not sold on that yet. Uh, patient investors clearly have won big, and that's great. Uh, the path forward does seem more difficult, though, and it's not clear that they're going to be the ones to best monetize things like immersive technology in the metaverse. Uh, understand, I'm, I'm just saying it's not clear. It seems reasonable to believe they are going to be a key player in the space. There's plenty of opportunity. Uh, we, we just don't really know how big that opportunity is ultimately going to get. Um, but it does feel like this really all boils down to the individual investor's line that they want to draw as as an investor. I mean, if you don't have moral or personal reservations in owning a company uh, like Facebook that's that's being called as bad as big tobacco and a threat to democracy, um, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine that shares aren't worth more five years from now. Uh, but it's it's hard to imagine this company getting out from under the microscope anytime soon either. So it could uh, it could be a bumpy ride. If Facebook has an outsized influence here in the U.S., it's even worse in other countries. As The Guardian writes, in many parts of the world, Facebook is the internet, and WhatsApp is the primary method of digital communication. In Brazil and Mexico, 95 and 98% of social media users have Facebook accounts. And in India, 500 million people use WhatsApp. What Facebook has achieved, their global influence and scope is undeniably impressive. Whether you think it's good for the world or your portfolio, well, you'll have to take that argument up with yourself. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Many factors will determine your ability to one day declare your financial independence. But if you're like most people, the number one factor is your spending. It determines how much you have left over to invest, how much you'll eventually need to retire, and whether you have to rely on credit cards to pay the bills. So putting your everyday financial decisions into the right context might help you spend more intelligently. And that is the lesson of a recent article on HumbleDollar.com entitled, What It Really Costs. And it was written by Matt Trogdon, who was first on the podcast way back in 2016 when he was a Motley Fool employee. But now he's a certified financial planner professional and a certifiable personal finance nerd who leads financial literacy workshops through Babson College. Matt, welcome back to the show. Bro, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. So, great to see you. Great to have you back. Let's talk a little bit about your article, and let's start with the very first paragraph. And you reference the old latte factor, you know, which is basically the belief that Americans are ruining their finances by going to Starbucks. 
specifically you referenced the time in 2019 when Susie Orman said that a daily coffee habit is like, quote, peeing a million dollars down the drain. So we haven't really actually discussed the latte factor much on the show, so I thought we'd chat about it now. So what's your take? Is this focusing, uh, is focusing the amount you spend on coffee or whatever, smoothies, lunch, good advice, or is it focusing on the wrong things? Uh, so I, I have two competing thoughts on it. Um, I am sympathetic to the idea behind the latte factor argument, which is based on what I think are pretty sound time value of money principles, right? The, the idea that if you spend less and you recoup that savings and you invest it and you achieve a decent investment return, you will have um, a, a surprisingly high amount of money in the future. Um, I like that idea quite a bit. Having said that, I think we are really focusing on the wrong thing. If you really look at sort of the key factors in what helps people save or not save, um, the research shows that, that it comes down to three things. It's housing. Is your housing affordable? Is your transportation affordable? Um, and is your education affordable? Um, generally speaking, if you can get those three things right, I think you can drink all of the lattes that you want. Yes. I have to talk about goals-based budgeting. If you have certain goals in your life, you want to retire, you want to pay for your kid's education, you're saving for a, a car, get that taken care of, figure out how much you need, get that out of your bank account and into your investment accounts. If you take care of all that, then you can feel pretty comfortable spending whatever you have left over. Yeah, I agree with that. So uh, th- some people, when they hear the, that figure from uh, Susie Orman, they're like, how did she come up with that? So I do like to provide the details behind that calculation. So according to Susie, uh, if you spend $100 a, a month on coffee, but you instead get that into a Roth IRA, 40 years earn 12% a year, that's where that million comes from. Uh, interestingly, if instead of earning 12%, you only earn 7%, you only have $250,000, which First of all, it's still a lot of money, but it shows like the power of earning just uh, you know a few percent more on your earnings. Um, now you can figure all this out yourself by using a financial calculator or an online calculator, which apparently is something you like to do. Tell us a little bit about your fascination with financial calculators. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, um, so I got my first financial calculator when I was studying for the CFP exam when I was going through the um, CFP coursework. Um, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. Um, you know, someone taught me about the idea of compound interest back when I was in college. Um, and it really changed my life, right? Uh, the idea that if you just save a little bit and you invest it and it compounds over time and, and you can put yourself in a much better position than you would have otherwise. Um, and so I kind of, I was using spreadsheets for a while. Some of my more math inclined friends would show me how to run a compound interest formula. I could never remember it. Um, and so I finally got my first financial calculator when I was studying for the CFP. You know, you push three or four buttons, you, you put two or three inputs in there, you hit enter and, and you have your, um, you have your number. Um, and so as I mentioned in the article, you know, I would go around and I have, I have a couple of little cousins that I adore. I'm, um, you know, they are probably 10, 10 years younger, 15 years younger, whatever it is. And I was home for the holidays and, and, you know, we were talking about things we were purchasing for the holidays, this, that, and the other. And I would just go, okay, well you spent a hundred dollars on that item. 
you know, if you had actually saved that instead of spending it and you had invested it at 7% over 30 years, you would have, you know, XYZ amount. Um, and while I thought it was exciting, um, <laughs> they certainly did not think it was exciting. They were just kind of like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, go, go back to where you came from. So I, I find the math to be a lot of fun. Um, but I realize that not everybody does. I'm sure you, you planted a good seed. When I was in college, I took a class, literature, of the American South. Um, but one of the kids in the class her dad was a financial advisor and convinced the professor to give him 15 minutes of the class time to talk about this, to talk about like, if you don't spend this, but you instead and invest it, this is how much you'll have after 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And of course, at then we were all in our you know, teenagers, early 20s. And I don't remember a thing from my literature, the American South class, except for that lesson. Sure. Uh, and by the way, I should say also that being here at The Fool for more than 20 years, I have come across many people whose sort of financial awakening came from calculators. Like being able to see like, holy cow, if I invest just a little bit of money consistently over decades, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. Absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing is, it's hard. Um, it, it's hard when you're talking to young folks to get them to get interested in that sort of thing, to get them to pay attention to that sort of thing. They really have to kind of be uh, somewhat receptive to that message. Um, and so it doesn't always work for everybody, but when it does, uh, it's gold. When I read that in your article, it reminded me a story of Shelby Davis, who's often considered one of the greatest investors of all time, because he turned $50,000 into $900 million over, over 47 years. Um, great book about him entitled The Davis Dynasty. Um, but so the story goes, one day, one of his grandsons asked for a dollar to buy a hot dog. And Shelby Davis, who was a multimillionaire, said, do you realize if you invest that dollar wisely, it will double every five years? And by the time you reach my age in 50 years, your dollar will be worth $1,000. Are you so hungry as to need a $1,000 hot dog? That's <laughs> <laughs> just the hilarious that a multimillionaire would do that. That is hilarious. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, there's an argument that, that can be made that people take these things too far. Um, and I think the, you know, the Susie Orman latte factor is kind of, a, a an example of that. You know, if you're going around, you know, kind of chastising people about their, their coffee orders, um, you're probably not going to have your message received it as well as you'd like it to be received. Yeah. The sad part of that story was that the uh, grandson starved to death. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what happened. <laughs> uh, okay. So there's the fun with calculators, but your article also suggests another way to frame spending. Consider the pre-tax cost of the purchases. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think this is potentially a more effective way to get through to people, especially to get through to young people, uh, to have them understand um, just the impact of their spending and the true cost of their spending. So everything we buy, if you think about it, um, you know, we buy it with after-tax dollars. Okay, and what I mean by that is that um, you know, if you make a salary or if you make a, a wage, um, you're going to get a certain amount, um, and then you're going to pay a certain amount of tax, and then you're going to have some money left over, right? So um, if you get paid. $10 an hour to make a, a good uh, round number, and you're at a 25% tax bracket, um, you know, you're going to have $7.50 left over. Okay. If you're in a 10% tax bracket, you're going to have $9 left over. Right. And so if you think about going back to the, the latte, um, what I always like to say is, okay, if you're in a 25% tax bracket and your uh, latte costs $3, 
you're going to have to make $4, okay? Because you're going to pay taxes out of your paycheck. You're going to pay a dollar in taxes. Then you're going to have $3 left over, and you can use that $3 to go spend on your coffee. Um, I like thinking about it that way because it helps put it in the context of, um, you know, the question of, well, how much do I have to earn in order to have the money to spend on whatever I want to spend on? Um, and then you can go even a step further and you can say, okay, well, how long do I have to work in order to make that amount of money to have the money to spend that I want to spend? Um, funny enough, uh, one of my cousins, a different cousin, um, I sent him the article after it got published and he, he texted me back and he said, wow, now I'm sitting over here thinking how much longer I have to work in order to buy certain things. And it makes me want to not buy those things. Um, success, yes, victory. victory, victory for cousin Matt. Yes. So there you go. <laughs> well, yeah. And then there's the, there's the tax bracket, right? So you, you could know your tax bracket after all, we're taping this on October 15th, your tax returns are due if you did your extension, but then there's social security taxes, 7.65%. There's sales tax, there's sure. state taxes, only nine taxes don't have a state tax. So really for many people listening, I would imagine most of the people listening to the show are probably in the 22 to 24% tax bracket. But when you add that other stuff, you're really talking about 35, 40, 45%. So where you want to spend a hundred bucks, you got to earn 150 first and yeah. then you figure out how much time it took to earn that. Yeah. And, uh, to go to the other end of the discussion, when you start talking about people who are in retirement, okay. Um, it, it can be sort of a rude awakening when people start to understand, um, you know, how big of a bite taxes will take out. So if you've been saving diligently, um, if you've worked and saved diligently in your 401k or whatever, and you know, say you have a million dollars in your 401k, uh, well, if that money went in pre-tax, um, you know, you're going to have to pay taxes when you take that money out. You're going to have to pay taxes at your income rate. You know, so if you want to take, you know, a big family trip, right, and it's going to be a, a, I don't know, a twenty, twenty, or thirty thousand dollar family trip, um, and you're going to pull the money out of your IRA to do it. Um, you might have to pull out 50,000 of your IRA to have the 30,000 left over. Okay. Um, so that, that can be a rude awakening for folks. Um, you know, especially uh, in even more dire circumstances when you, when you have folks who, uh, maybe have to go into assisted living towards the end of their lives and have to write a big check, um, in order to get into an assisted living facility, um, you know, when you factor in the taxes that they'll have to pay, um, it's a much bigger amount than they might be prepared for. So I think getting your head wrapped around the idea of the um, pre-tax and after-tax cost of these things um, can be really useful. Yeah, I've often said that um, I don't think retirees appreciate that um, for every dollar they spend, they may have to pay more taxes if that extra dollar is coming out of a tax-deferred account or if they mm -hmm. have to sell investments. So uh, that will increase their tax, you know, their tax bill. Come April 15th, they have to pay the tax bill. Where's that money going to come from? They have to then take out more money from their accounts, which will drive up next year's tax bill. Right. So, and another aspect about this that I'm glad you, you've talked about retirees, because whenever we talk about the time value of money, people might be listening and thinking, well, you know, I'm 70, I'm retired. I don't have 40 years to, you know, save money. I'm spending money, but the same principle applies to spending less 
from your portfolio, that means there'll be more in your portfolio down the road. So if you were to say to someone, you know, $100 invested today at an 8% annual return would grow to $500 in 20 years, which is about what it would be. If you're retired, the way to think of it is spending $100 less means that in 20 years, my retirement portfolio will have $500 more, which means mm -hmm. you increase the chances that you won't run out of money. Right. It increases the chances that you'll have money for long-term care if you need it. And it, it increases the amount that you'll leave to your heirs if that's important to you. Yep. Uh, and we won't even get into the whole the whole aspect of when you're retired, if you get a big bill of some kind, a, a large increase in income, that can increase the chances of your Social Security be taxed and increase the chances that you'll pay higher Medicare premiums. Right. Yeah. Whole other topic. Okay. So let's move on. Uh, so uh, I think another couple of, of interesting things to, to think about spending is to annualize your spending, right? So um, for example, you might think of, your cable bill, for example, and if you're paying $100 a month, that's one thing. But then when you think of the fact that you're paying $1,200 a year for mm -hmm. that, it gives you sort of a bigger appreciation for how much you're spending. And it might be a, a monthly bill like cable or the gym, or it, be, it might be just the amount you spend each month on something that may be not quite so important to you. Yeah, I agree. And you can then compare it to what your salary is, right? So if, you, if you're spending $1,200 a year on cable and you're making $60,000 a year, um, you know, then you have, uh, you know, you, you have a, a number that you can compare it to, right? Um, and then you can make that decision about how, it's, how important it is or how not important it is. But um, it's always helpful to have all of the math that you can get. I did want to throw in a rule of thumb, by the way, since we talked about hourly as well. A lot of people don't know their hourly wage because they um, earn a salary. Um, but so here's, if you earn a salary, here's the rule of thumb to figuring out your, your hourly wage. That's basically lop off the three zeros and then divide by two. So let's say you earn $75,000 a year. You lop off the three zeros, you get 75, divide by two, 35. You're roughly earning $35 an hour. So that's another way to think about is this purchase worth the amount of time I had to work in order to pay for that? Exactly. Okay. So I did have a, a more practical question for you because I know you at back in the day when you was days when you worked at the fool, you were kind of known as being a pretty good budgeter. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that still the case? And, and what tools are you using? How do you keep on top of your spending? Yeah, sure. Um, I am still, uh, I still use mint.com. Um, I go through phases where I either use it um, religiously or whether I just sort of check in once a month. Um, I'm, at, I'm in one of those phases now where I'm just checking in once a month. Um, I don't have, I don't put myself on a strict budget, um, but I know uh, what the what the levers are that I can control. You know, I know the difference between my fixed costs and my variable costs. And I try to keep my variable costs, so that's food and clothing, entertainment. Um, try to keep those, you know, within some some boundaries. Um, so I, you know, I find it helpful uh, just to know, um, you know, to know where your money is going. Um, the the thing about budgeting is budgeting is not fun. Nobody wants to budget, right? Um, and so, you know, if you're a financial planner, financial advisor, and you meet with a client and the first thing you do is you give them a, a budget sheet to fill out, you're never going to see that client again. Right. <laughs> um, and so I, I don't think it's that important to have, um, too strict of a budget, 
but I do think it's important to understand broadly where every dollar is going. Um, because if, if you, if you don't, um, then you'll be surprised where every dollar is going, right? And then you might find out, well, heck, I'm spending way more on that than I thought I was, and, and it's not really something that's important to me. Um, and by doing that, I have uh, the opportunity cost is that I can't spend more money on the thing that I that is important to me, right? Um, so it's important to know where it, where your money is going, um, and if you really want to, um, you know, to get further into that, there are ways to do it. Um, I have a friend who uses. Uh, the you need a budget website um, and swears by it. Um, I haven't used it, but um, that would be the only other one that I could speak to at the moment. Yeah, we talked about budgeting tools earlier this year, and definitely YNAB, you need a budget. Mint uh, came up as as favorites. Uh, uh, personal capital as well for people who also wanted a more robust investing analysis tool. And something else you something else you said there raised up a good point is that. Once you do it for a while, you get a pretty good sense of where your money is going, and you have a sense of which discretionary expenses are most likely to get out of the way. So it's not a situation where you have to watch every dollar. It's just you have to know, you know what, it's these one or two or three categories that I just have to keep an eye on. Yep. And since you bring it up, um, and since he's in the virtual room with us, and I hope this makes it into the show, I remember we talked about using Mint in, a, in an investing club meeting at the Fool when I was there, and Rick was in the room with us, and I was going through my different spreadsheets, and Rick said something to the effect of, man, how do you have a life if you do all of this stuff? <laughs> I have no memory of that whatsoever. <laughs> but I stand by it. <laughs> all right, let's get to uh, one of the final sentences of your article. You wrote, we should spend and save money in ways that reflect our values. What do you mean by that? Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, I'll give you a good resource on this one. Um, so someone whose book I've read in the last year, which really spoke to me, was uh, Remit Sethi, uh, How to Live a Rich Life. Um, or how to, or I will, t- sorry, the name of the book is I Will Teach You to Be Rich. Um, and so his idea is all about living a rich life. Um, and so... Um, brass tacks, what he means is, uh, to sort of ruthlessly cut out, um, the things that aren't important to you in order to be able to spend lavishly on the things that are important to you. Um, and so if travel is important to you, for example, you will get a lot more enjoyment out of spending lavishly on travel than you will out of just sort of spending a little bit on travel and then also using your budget to buy nice clothes and go out to nice dinners um, and have every potential uh, you know, cable cord cutting subscription. So find the things that are important to you, spend your money there, and then at the same time, you know, f- try to look at the things that aren't important to you and that's where you should cut back. Um, so it, to tie it all back together, you know, if going out for coffee in the morning is something that you get just a tremendous amount of joy from, or if it's something that you use for networking, or if it's something that just you need to have that experience over the course of the day to get your day and your week started off correctly, then you should feel free, feel free to go for it and feel free to go all in. Um, and you can cut somewhere else. Um, but if, 
going to coffee, you know, if getting coffee is not that important to you, if getting lunch out is not that important to you, if, uh, you know, ordering delivery is not that important to you and you're just doing it because you don't feel like cooking, um, then you can start to take a hard look at those places um, and, and sort of and mine them um, for potential places for savings. Uh, any other budgeting or money management tips or principles you'd like to pass along here towards the end of our discussion? Yeah, I, you know, I'll just go back to the idea of uh, of uh, kind of very strict budgeting versus just gaining an understanding. Um, I, I think it, it's kind of like uh, it can be like dieting, right? If you if you try to put yourself on a very strict diet, um, and uh, you know, eventually you will fall off the wagon, most likely, right? If you try to put yourself on a very strict budget, it's a really hard thing to do. Um, but if you just like gain, can gain an understanding of how money flows through your life, um, you know, and so on the, on the health side, if you can just get an understanding of how your health works and how to live a, a healthier lifestyle generally, you know, I, I think kind of dipping your toe into it, um, you're going to have some more success there. Excellent advice. Our guest has been Matt Trogdon, a CFP professional whose article, What It Really Costs, was recently published on HumbleDollar.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you, bro. It's time now for Answers, Answers. And this week's question comes from Luke. Thanks largely to the Fool's Podcast and the Stock Advisor Service, I have been earning tremendous investment returns. Also, thanks to Answers, I was wise enough to have the bulk of it in Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks. However, even my small amount in traditional accounts is growing, and if I sell, it could represent a respectable gain. How do I do the taxes? Do I need to withhold it like other taxes to avoid penalties or stern looks from my tax guy? Or should I just set some money aside in an account and wait till I file? Thank you for all your wisdom. I am smarter, happier, and much richer than I expected to be at this point in life. And it has a lot to do with you too. Oh, Luke. That's so and he's sweet. not talking about the Irish band. I think he's talking about us, which is very nice. Uh, Luke, thank you for the kind words and congrats on the excellent returns and the wisdom to have those investments in the Roth accounts. So as long as you follow the rules and Congress doesn't change the rules, uh, you'll be able to take that money out tax-free in retirement, which is awesome. Now, you mentioned that you have traditional accounts. If you mean that you have traditional pre-tax IRAs or 401ks, uh, you don't have to worry about any interest or dividends or capital gains generated in those accounts in any given year. These accounts are considered tax deferred, which means you don't pay taxes until you take the money out, at which point the withdrawals will be taxed as ordinary income. Now, if by traditional accounts you meant regular taxable brokerage accounts, then you may have a tax issue on your hands. It's because the U.S. tax system is basically a pay-as-you-go system uh, and that you're generally required to pay taxes around the time you earn the income. And if you work for an employer, this is done for you via the withholdings from your paycheck, which are based on how you filled out your W-4 when you were hired. If you have too much withheld, you get a refund when you file your taxes. If you don't, you'll owe taxes and maybe pay a penalty because the federal government and your state, if it levies an income tax, expect to get a certain amount throughout the year. Um, there are many forms of income that are generally not subject to this automatic withholding. It includes like, you know, rent, alimony in some circumstances, unemployment benefits in some circumstances, self-employment income, interest dividends, and capital gains. So if you sell some stocks in a regular taxable brokerage account and realize sizable capital gains, 
you may end up paying a penalty if you don't share some of those gains with Uncle Sam close-ish to when you realized them. How do you know if you're going to pay a penalty? Well, if you meet any of the following three criteria, you will not owe a penalty. Number one, after completing your tax return, you owe less than $1,000 in taxes for the year. You're safe. You're good. Number two, your withholdings and other payments amount to at least 90% of the total tax that you owe. Again, if that's the situation, you're fine. And number three, your income tax withholding and payments are at least 100% of the total tax owed on last year's return. And for those whose adjusted gross incomes last year were above $150,000 or $75,000 if you're married and filed separately, then your withholdings and payments must be at least 110% of the total tax you owed for the previous year. So if you meet any of those three criteria, criteria you're fine. If you don't think you'll meet any of those three criteria when you file your taxes for this year, then you probably should consider sending some money to Uncle Sam sooner rather than later because the penalty gets bigger the more you delay. How do you send in the payment? Well, you can just send it in extra amount using Form 1040ES, Estimated Tax for Individuals. You can find that on the IRS website. Or if you use some sort of like tax software or tax website, they have it there and you can do it that way as well. Um, if you're still working, you can amend your W-4 so that you have more withheld from your paycheck for the rest of the year. But again, if you don't pay it all off sooner, the penalty you pay will be later. So, so that's, only, that's only a gradual way to do it. It may not be fast enough to reduce your penalty. Um, your broker actually may allow you to elect federal or state tax withholding. So check the website and give them a call. That's great for any future sales that you do. Uh, and finally, since Luke mentioned that he has a tax guy, give him a call. He'll be able to help determine whether you need to send in money, the amount you should send in, and he can actually do it for you. And this really is likely the best option for people who aren't sure because this stuff can be complicated. Plus what I'm mostly discussing are the federal rules and many states have their own rules. Um, since Luke mentioned that he has a Roth 401k, I assume he's still working. Um, but once people enter retirement, it's kind of a whole new world, right? You go from receiving most of your income from an employer who withholds taxes to receiving income from multiple sources with various withholding rules. Um, for example, you can choose to have money withhold from Social Security or not. Distributions from pre-tax traditional retirement accounts are subject to a default 10% withholding, but you can change that. Uh, so before you retire, work with a financial planner or a tax pro to help you determine the best way to pay your taxes for your situation. Uh, and speaking of retirement accounts, there's one other situation that might require you to send in some money to Uncle Sam before April 15th. And that's when you convert money in a pre-tax pre traditional retirement account to a Roth account. The amount you convert may be added to your taxable income for this year. That increases your tax bill. But from then on, the money will go tax-free because it's in the Roth. Here's the thing. You have to make sure that the total amount that you're moving from the traditional account makes it to your Roth. If your broker withheld any of that money and sent it to the IRS, or you kept some of that money, maybe to pay the associated tax bill, and that money didn't make it to the Roth, that amount will be assessed a 10% penalty if you're not yet 59 and a half. Finally, I'm going to just point out that we have a little more than two months left in 2021. So everyone should start considering year-end tax moves. And that includes checking to see how much you've had withheld so far, or if you're self-employed, the amounts that you've paid in estimated payments, and determine if you've paid enough and make adjustments while you still can. Oh, that's the show. It's edited Rattle and Hummily by Rick Engel. You too, reference. I got that. There we go. All right. <laughs> Perfect.
Robert Brokamp. I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.